Hey, my name is John Irwin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new to our church, you may not realize we have a little rotation. Pastor Scott preaches for most of the weeks, and then every once in a while I'll give him a little uh, relief. So they're bringing the righty from the bullpen today. And uh, we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. Hey, take your uh, worship notes, uh, bulletin notes here, and uh, got your, your pens. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14. And I've entitled the message, I Beg to Differ, Romans 14. You know, I found that young men, there are two times in your life, and I'm going to consider myself still a young man, but as I was growing up, there are two times in your life when you know all. One is when you are 16 years old and you get your driver's license. You become the expert on traffic law. You're an expert on how to do a uh, parallel parking, all of those things. You know what the funny thing is? I've never think I've ever told this publicly. I flunked my driving test on my 16th birthday. So apparently I did not know all. The second time that I thought I knew all was my first year in seminary. I went to Talbot Theological Seminary, and I, was, uh, I became that person that I'm embarrassed to describe today in Romans chapter 14. If any of you have ever gone to grad school, you get into grad school, and in this case, it's seminary, and you're studying the Bible. All of a sudden, you go from studying God's word because it's good for your soul to studying God's word because you're going to flunk a test on Friday. And I found myself getting a bit judgmental and critical. I found myself doing this, going, hmm, I wonder if our pastor has properly exegeted that text. I wonder if he even does his devotions in the Greek like I do now. Now, I'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek because it may be more true than I'm willing to admit to, but there are times in our lives we just flat out get a bit judgmental, and in fact, we think our way is the only way that people should think. Paul, by the way, addresses that very issue in Romans 14 when you have good, well-intentioned people who believe strongly about something, but they can't land the plane and agree to disagree on those areas where they just aren't going to come up with the same conclusion. And so this morning, we want to look at that together. And so maybe you've been that person who's gotten into a discussion. And by the way, Christians, this is, they never get into arguments. We just get into discussions, right? Because somehow that sounds less combative. And in fact, you've been in those discussions where you couldn't come to an agreement, could you? And we'll talk about some of those areas that historically the church hasn't agreed in today. But Part of the problem is that we think our position is the only biblical position, and clearly it's the most logical position, and if they had seen my logic, then how in the world could they hold to their point of view? And if we go a little less, um, or we go a little deeper into the thought behind this, if we're not careful, we become very judgmental ourselves, don't we? In fact, if they were just a little less, uh, if, if they were more knowledgeable and uh, they were a little more spiritual, uh, maybe they would see it my way. You know, the thing is that in churches, and it goes all the way back to this text, we can see that people disagree. And so how do we today learn how to disagree without being disagreeable? How can you have a conversation without becoming combative? And the bottom line is 
How do we love one another in the body of Christ without judging each other? That's where we're headed this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would enlighten our text, that you would open our minds, and more importantly, open our hearts as we see your word today. May it be something we apply to ourselves and not to others today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the context of tolerance in chapter 14 of Romans, verses 1 through 2. If you've been here any of time, we've been in Romans since the fall. And um, if you're new to our church and don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab that Bible in the chair in front of you. It's in the seat in front of you. It's on page 948 if you are trying to find your way to where we're at. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Look at the context of tolerance, and first of all, it's all about love. So if I want to remind you where Pastor Scott has taken us over the last several weeks. In chapter 12, the context of love is that love serves. It talks about, we talked about spiritual gifts and that love must be genuine. Then in Romans 13, we talked about love must be submissive, especially uh, to uh, external authorities that God's placed over us in our lives, as well as in the second half of that, that it should be universal, that we shouldn't owe um, no man anything. Remember that in verse 8. Now we come to chapter 14, and love must be patient and tolerant of other people's views, especially those that are less enlightened than our viewpoints. Now again, I'll say this a little tongue-in-cheek because clearly when we're in a discussion about something, and we'll find a host of things we can agree to disagree on, we always think we're right. How many of you, when you're in a discussion with somebody, think that you are right? Raise your hand. Now, some of your hands shot up so quickly, you practically dislocated your shoulder. Therein lies why marriage counselors will never go out of business, right? We always think we're right. Ray Stedman, who was the mentor to Chuck Swindoll, and if you don't know who that guy is, he was a famous preacher in yesteryear. He's still preaching in, in Texas right now. But Ray Stedman was his mentor, and he was the senior pastor at, at Peninsula Bible Church. And when he preached on this sermon, Romans 14, he says that this passage is the favorite indoor sport of Christians. That's what it's describing. You go, well, what's that? And he says it's trying to change each other is the favorite sport of Christians. Well, I hope that's not true of us, that we're trying to, quote, change each other. But in our heart of hearts, there are times when we say, hmm, I wonder how much fellowship I can have with this other believer if, if we don't actually line up in all the right areas. Well, clearly, there are differing views differing views. And look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. Interesting, he says, don't uh, reject him. Don't uh, accept him just for the purpose of debating him. God made him part of the family. He's a brother or sister in Christ. And our role isn't to straighten that person out. Some of us think it's our job to correct their doctrine and their theology. And I'll talk about when it's appropriate to confront doctrinal error. But in this point, he's saying, hey, they're part of God's family. They belong, and we belong to one another. Look at verse 2. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the ones who eat eat despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Wow, the first mention of scripture of this whole vegetarian debate, right? You know, we had the meat eaters, pizza lovers, and we had the veggie pizza lovers here. Actually, let me give you a context, because I think you probably know this, but there were clearly factions in the early church. There were Jewish believers 
who had grown up a Jewish ceremonial law. And what's one thing Jews can't eat? What's, what's the famous food that they don't eat? They don't eat pork, right? And so bacon was never part of their diet, so to speak. Now, the other thing they didn't want to do is eat meat, not just pork, that was sacrificed to idols. So a lot of the, the meat that would have been in the, in the marketplace would have come from the temple area where it may have been sacrificed idols. And it, clearly, it was an affront to them. It, it wasn't kosher on one end. And in essence, they believe if you ate that meat, it was tantamount to worshiping or uh, kind of... Um, uh, worshiping this idol that it had been offered up for. Now, I want to take just a moment to say that when he's talking about the weaker brother here, we're not talking about weaker physically. We're not talking about weaker spiritually. What we're talking about is someone who is less, uh, not less theologically sound. We're talking about someone whose conscience is sensitive. They want to honor the Lord, but they have some doubts about this behavior or activity. And certainly, we would say that the Gentiles in this church might have also had some issues with meat offered idols. So it wasn't a simple little discussion. Both groups had a concern that they wanted to honor the Lord. And if you wanted to get other background, go to 1 Corinthians 8. You can see this whole uh, meat offered idols uh, conflict in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. And so these weaker Jewish brothers saw these strong Gentile believers uh, as being immoral because of their, their libertarian-type views. Now, and the, and the Gentile believers thought these Jewish believers are just way too sensitive, and they're just exaggerating things a bit. Now, interesting, this has been going on in the church for decades, yea, thus verily, centuries, that there's always going to be something that somebody's going to have a viewpoint in the church uh, that that's important to them, but it's ultimately not a big deal for the kingdom. And so for those of you who kind of trumpet your freedom in Christ, you may have some brothers on a more conservative side or what we would call a more narrow side that, that are, you kind of see them as way too uptight or strict or fundamentalist or too conservative. And, um, and so they kind of call you, you know, well, you're kind of legalistic because you just loosen up. In fact, those of you that come from a more permissive viewpoint on whatever topic we're talking about, uh, has some people define legalism like this. Uh, a legalist is one who lives in mortal fear that someone somewhere is enjoying himself. <laughs> That's probably not really fair. And seriously, if you tend to have be on the more conservative side, that, that you know you came by your choices honestly. Some of you came by your choices because of the church you were raised in. So let's just do a little poll here. How many of you grew up in a, this, by the way, this is a Bible church, but it, we have Baptistic roots. We're part of the conversion movement. How many grew up in a Baptist church? Raise your hands. Now, raise your hands again. If your Baptist upbringing, was it a little conservative, maybe a little tight, a little, and at time, my wife's hand just went, flew off her shoulder right now, all right? Some of you, okay, others, you maybe it was more balanced. Now, you say, no one's as strict as the Baptist. Let me point something out to you. How many of you grew up Catholic? Anybody grow up Catholic in the audience? All right, now, we could have a debate about whose upbringing was a little more strict and conservative or legalistic, but I can tell you, my Catholic friends tell me a story about the nuns in, in private school and how strict they were, and that was nothing compared to our deacons and our Baptists. So we can even argue about who grew up in the most strict environment. 
right? There's plenty of divide in the church about strict or license or freedom, etc. But the bottom line, for those who are more conservative, we do the same thing to our, quote, more permissive or liberal brothers. We see them taking license, they're pushing biblical boundaries, they're lacking holiness, they're on the slippery slope to liberalism, and quite frankly, they're just, we don't know if they're really, it's true to the word, because it feels like they're compromising, right? And we have a tendency to say, no, you shouldn't, you can't, how could you do this? And they're saying, why can't you just see the positive? Why is the glass always half empty with you? Now, Note, clearly hear me say as you're reading this text, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't have clear understanding of proper doctrine and, and that, that, that there can't be distinctions made when someone's teaching heresy or there's clear doctrinal error. The problem is we tend to elevate our issues and our opinions to a level on the, as, as like the deity of Christ and, the, and that, that they're as important as some of the more uh, fundamental issues of the faith. What Paul's talking about, meat awful eiders, he doesn't put in that I'm um, in a die for category. And we're going to talk about these three buckets at the end of our sermon here. So it, what's important is not who holds what position, but what Paul says to both groups. And what I want you to see in the text is look clearly about what he didn't say to these two groups. Because after those first three verses, wouldn't you expect that he would have said something to correct them, all right? Do you see any correction? I don't see any correction. In fact, he's, he doesn't, he's confronting this kind of judgmental attitude about making something that's non-essential and essential. So he doesn't condemn or chastise either group. He doesn't take a side. There's no winners or losers in these verses. He doesn't ask the strong or the weak to change their positions, but he does say one thing. What does he say? He says, you've got to accept these brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they hold a viewpoint different from yours. Now, this whole gray area in the Christian life is some people have written lots of books about them because there's plenty of things both in behavior and in theology where people have literally differing views. We've, we've argued about these things throughout church history, about what's more right, what's more holy, what's more proper. So let's just take a little jaunt down historical lane together. In the 50s, you, most, some of you weren't even born. It was all about bathing suits back then. I didn't realize that apparently I was violating somebody's biblical principle when I was a youth pastor many years later by having a pool party. If you were in a bathing suit with, with that was called mixed bathing. I had no idea about that. But back then, that was something that was a very important. Now, there were things like lipstick was kind of taboo in the church. And I don't, I've said this and no one's told me what the origin is. There was some debate in churches about zippers versus buttons. I don't know what that meant, but I'm saying it to you in case someone will enlighten me this week. Uh, we go down the line a little bit. We get into to, uh, going to school. The big deal in the 60s was school dances. I'm telling you, uh, my sister begged my parents if she could go to the sock hop. Sock hop, I guess, because you wore socks because you couldn't wear your shoes on the gym floor. Now, some of you are looking like, that was no issue. I went to all the school dances. Well, see, you didn't grow up in the Baptist church that I grew up in because I'm telling you, going to dances like, mm, done, you're out. And my parents were kind of permissive because they had this wild idea that if you train up a child and you give them good boundaries and they, are, they haven't violated your trust, 
let's, let's let them do that. Now, some of your parents are going, yep, see, that's what you get with those permissive parents. Those kids sneak behind their back, and I'm sure there was some dirty dancing going on in the gym. Look how far apart they were. What could have happened there? I'm telling you. And that's kind of, you know, what my sister looked like back in the day. So then we get in the church, and then it's like, you know, the Beatles versus Beethoven, and, you know, is rock music all right? And all of a sudden, you know, guys like Larry Norman were writing this, this song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Anybody remember that song? You have to probably be my age or older. Like four of you know that, and some of you music officials, Chad knew that song. And uh, so the bottom line is, in the 70s, we fought about all kinds of things. We fought about length of skirts. They were too short. Length of hair. It was too long, Right. In fact, I almost put a picture in there because you would not have believed what I look like in 1972. I haven't always been the short, you know, gray-haired, piachet-looking guy up here, you know. I, my wife says when I get my hair cut, I look like Dilbert. I don't know if that's true, but the bottom line is I don't, I don't really like to comb. She's in the back row going, I can't believe I used I did. That's what you get. You're in the back row. Um, and so the bottom line is we've, we, we kind of disagreed about that kind of stuff. Or whether it was something more serious. And we thought, you know, theological wars or church wars over, over theology like Calvinism versus Arminianism. The big one in the 80s was kind of the issue of um, being seeker sensitive, right? And so it was some novel idea to put the scripture on the screen. Or like uh, today, if, if you, you know, saying that you can turn to a page in our Bible and if you, you know, that, that, that would have been, oh, that's, you, people should bring their Bibles. You shouldn't help them. Now, think about what that, you know, now, I realize there was a legitimate debate going on about being seeker-sensitive or seeker-driven. That's an argument from 30 years ago. I'm really glad that that's not the arguments we're fighting over in our church. In fact, as I preach to you, I might be kind of preaching the choir because one of the things that Scott and I have talked about this week is we're so glad we're not the church that Paul's describing right now. That by and large, this isn't our issues. It could be. It could be if we don't keep the main thing the main thing, but it isn't what we're fighting about today. The other big deal was kind of hymns versus performance worship and that, that you know, why, what happened to the good music and why are we singing the song with the same verse and it's the same exact words like 17 times. I get it. I've memorized it, right? And people kind of, uh, young versus old kind of get into that. And on and on and on. Write this down. Your personal convictions don't have to become my moral imperative. Just because you have a personal conviction about XYZ thing, that doesn't mean that that has to become my moral imperative. And for some of us, we've elevated our personal convictions to such a level that we think we're right, it's my way or the highway, and if you don't agree with me, that somehow you're lacking, deficient, unspiritual, etc., etc. And so we've got to give people the freedom to decide for themselves to do what's right. Let's look at the case for judging in verses 4 through 6. Let me start with, first of all, it's not our place. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. First and foremost, we are not to judge one another because it's not our place. It's the Lord's. He's the one who's going to bring about that conviction. It's our responsibility. 
uh, to not try to change people. God knows their hearts. Last time I checked, we are not the Holy Spirit. Now, a bad marriage joke is, that's why you have a spouse, right? And I'm not going to go there. And some of you, by the way, that's why anybody who has been married for any length of time, you're going to have different opinion on a whole host of things. And when we start kind of criticizing each other's intentions, we end up in some serious deep water, don't we? Now, they were judging in two areas. Look at verses 5 and following. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What does all this mean? Well, remember, the Jewish believers have come out of a history of celebrating a lot of Jewish feasts. There was all kinds of holy days, high holy days. In fact, they kept the Sabbath. Gentile believers are saying, hey, we're going to honor the Lord on the first day of the week because why? Why would we change from the Sabbath, what was the Jewish culture, to a Gentile culture that celebrated on the first day of the week, their church attendance and involvement. Why did we do that? Because Christ rose on the first day of the week, right? And so they kind of honor the resurrection by that. Neither is right or wrong, but we even have today in Protestantism, uh, Seventh-day Adventists who still only worship on Saturday, right? Uh, that's, that's kind of their deal. And so the, the day uh, and the days that they worship, uh, he even brings out here that, you know, if you honor the Lord with your life, that's what's most important, whether you honor him through these festivals or every day your life is an offering to the Lord. Or if you set aside one day to really focus on the Lord. He's saying it's all good. Then he gets into fasting or not and whether you eat or don't eat in honor of the Lord. But the bottom line, whether you're young or old, there's always things where you're going to disagree with people in the body of Christ. Now, I realize some of our bigger arguments don't happen between the people in the body of Christ. But when the world sees us fighting and not getting along, they go, I'm out. I don't need this. And so what is God's view of judging? <clears throat> because I do think we as a people, in general, as Christians, we have a propensity to judge other people. So what does God say about judging? Is there a biblical point of view? I want to suggest three things. Number one, we are commanded not to judge. We've already seen it in this text, but let me just read three other texts. Matthew 7, 1. And, and by the way, when we're commanded not to judge, I think primarily we're commanded not to judge in relation to motives or intentions. You'll see that. I'm not saying that you can't divide you know, the word of truth and say this is a doctrinal issue, not a personal issue. Look at Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. First Corinthians, I'll just let the scriptures speak for themselves. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment for the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from the Lord. You see, we don't know the motives. We don't know what's going behind, behind closed doors. You make evaluations of people, or I make evaluations of people, and we don't know the whole story. It's so easy to jump to a conclusion. James 4.11, I'll just read the first part. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't speak evil. Second principle, a biblical view of judging. We are never to condone immorality or injustice. See, there's always a tension. Don't judge, but that doesn't mean you compromise. It doesn't mean that we fall into this moral complacency and apathetic spirituality 
God gives us the ability to think clearly, to evaluate something that's unbiblical or immoral in behavior. And there are legitimate evaluations where we look at the life or we look at the behavior, and that's clearly right or wrong. And there's plenty of examples in the Bible where there's been moral judgments made. So when we say don't judge, we're not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? John the Baptist, did he kind of confront somebody? Lost his head over it, right? He confronted uh, Herod Antipas' adultery, right? Uh, how about Jesus? He, he kind of confronted religious, you know, pharisaicalism, and he kicked out a few guys changing monies in the temple. In fact, he did it twice, by the way. Paul speaks very care, uh, carefully and directly about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. So bottom line is not con condemning bad behavior. We're not condemning things that clearly are out of bounds. The problem is we want whatever our hobby horse to be elevated to something that God speaks directly to, and most of the stuff doesn't rise to that level. It just doesn't. Number three is we stand under God's judgment too. So before we're so quick to point the finger at somebody else and say, hey, 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 um, there shouldn't be any self-righteousness here. There shouldn't be any spiritual superiority here. The problem is that we believe that God's pretty pleased with us, but we're not so sure about those other guys, right? I mean, if we really were honest with ourselves, look it. They just don't get it. I get it, God. You know, and God says, no, you're a sinner. They're a sinner. You're saved by grace, but you've got your stuff too. And so, truth be known, we can be pretty pleased with ourselves, can't we? And so, at times, we evaluate other people because of our perception of their spiritual maturity or lack of it, right? And so, one of the things that happens in the church is we have people at all ages and stages in spiritual growth here. One of the very cool things is some of you who are sitting in this room have not yet crossed the line of faith. And this is a safe place for you to evaluate the Bible, to evaluate the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Our pastor does a fantastic job every week of just opening a word and clearly teaching about what God is saying. And then we give you time to process. And we can tell you story after story of people who came here who were broken, who were hurting, who were wounded, who were discouraged, who felt like the institutional church was not for them. They had gone to church, but it wasn't working for them. They may or may not have made a profession of faith, but they need a place that was safe. And I want to tell you, church, you have provided that great environment here. This is a safe place. You know, uh, my atheist racquetball buddy, which I can't keep telling you about because one day he's going to come to faith in Christ. He was, he was, then I have no more stories to tell. But he came a few weeks ago. He came for Easter, you know. We said to post the video and this and that, and someone sent me this Facebook funny video about a guy who didn't invite his neighbor. He said, what? I wasn't good enough to come to your church. And I thought, okay, one more time I'll invite. And he came. And he brought his, like, grandkids from Latvia. And they loved it. And yet, you know, he still thinks I'm an intellectual peon, you know, that how could I believe all this stuff? But it's okay. I beat him in racquetball. It's fun. <laughs> but the bottom line is, it's a very safe place for him to be here. He came to Christmas Cafe, right? And all of you who have ever invited someone going, like, this is never going to work, 
This is the place it's going to work. Because it's going to work because the Holy Spirit in his time will bring them, will woo them. It's not our job to beat them over the head with the Bible, to whack them up the the face with our sword of, of, of rightness. Let people go at the pace they're going to go. Yeah, but it's messy. Uh-huh. It's really messy because people haven't gotten their acts together sufficiently for us to say, whoa, but, you know, the guy is still, like, smoking, not, like, out in the parking lot. Wow, if that's the worst thing he's doing right now, we're doing pretty good. Just be glad he's not dealing dope to the pastor here, you know? I, I say that kiddingly because clearly there are convictions. I'm not making light of that. But I'm so glad that this is a place where you can grow together. We can do it together. So where do we judge? When the rubber meets the road, where are those areas that we judge? Now, I could just kind of pick all the areas that you judge, that I don't judge, but I, I thought long and hard, would I be honest with you today. Now, I, it's always a bad deal when the pastor says, I'm trying to decide whether I want to be honest with you. That, that says something, right? Like, but it's hard for me to admit that I'm a recovering judger. I don't know how it got into my life, but I do know this. Someone told me my spiritual gift was exhortation. So I thought somehow growing up that I should exhort you to godliness and holiness and you should do this and and you find yourself waking up one morning and you're kind of Pharisee. And you look at Jesus' most harsh words. And they're about the religious authorities that lorded it over people. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that tries to be your conscience, that tries to be your Holy Spirit. But sometimes I wake up and I get, I'm mad. And I don't want to be mad. And I think every pastor probably wrestles with this. When I was pastoring in a small church uh, a few years back, you know, we had about 50, 80 people, and a huge Sunday was 90, and I found myself taking mental attendance about who was there and who was not there. That is sick and twisted. Like, they're probably on vacation. No, they probably just didn't like the sermon. I had all these insecurities about, I was judgmental, and somehow a bigger church or more attendance was somehow validating to my ministry. Or maybe, you know, I was in a church, uh, we don't know this here, we don't know who gives what, but when if the offerings were low that week, like, what's wrong with these people? Why aren't they tithing? They probably are tithing. Why, who am I to judge who's giving what? I, I don't need to know that. By the way, it's pretty cool. This, this church is a very generous church, very gracious. Just look at the bulletin. We just put the numbers out. They speak for themselves. But there's other areas that we judge. We have the dichotomy between rich and poor in the body of Christ. Those of you well off sometimes maybe look down at those who are less well off and say, well, why is he chronically unemployed? Doesn't he, why isn't he working? And those of you who have less means, what's that guy spending his money on that? Doesn't he see people that are going hungry? And How can he live in a house like that? Or maybe it's parenting styles. Holy smokes, I'm never going to let my kids have a sleepover at their house. Do you let, see what you let, they let them watch? Or there's no supervision. Other people go, I never want them spending the night at their house. They'll come back as a little Nazi robot. <laughs> and we judge each other. How about school choices? 
Oh, homeschool is the only way. Oh, private school is the only way. Oh, public school is the only way. And we can debate about what kind of school we send our kids to. I remember when I was in a very large church in Minnesota, we had to face that decision. We had a huge homeschooling contingent, and everybody was lobbying the pastoral staff. There was a lot of us like, where are you sending your kid to school? And um, I was kind of the, I, I felt a little ostracized. My kids actually went to a public school. And I could see these well-intentioned people look at me just like, poor pastor, he is so deceived. We need to pray for Brother John and Cheryl. <laughs> he sent their kids into the den of iniquity. These poor children will be scarred for life. Now, in all defense, many of you homeschool your kids, and you have great kids, and some of you are great products of that. It just wasn't our choice. But then I, I don't know if I caved or I just thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe that Johnny really isn't ready for that. So then we put him into a private Christian school. Oh, my goodness. Two of the longest years of my son's life ever, first and second grade, 11 kids in a combo class, nine girls. He was going crazy. Now, later in life, he would have loved those odds, let me tell you. But not when you're in first and second grade and there's one other kid and he's just lame, right? <laughs> so you got choices to make. And we fight over these dumb choices. I could go on and on. How about stay-at-home moms versus working moms? And what does God say about that? And maybe if we're just really honest, sometimes the people we're judging or evaluating in some area of their life is a smokescreen for the insecurities and the issues we're running from in our own life. One of the hardest things that a pastor deals with is when you get one of those letters. It's hard not to be defensive. It's hard not to be, what? What are they thinking? And in your mind you go, I can answer. And you know, quite frankly, I don't get those letters. Pastor Scott's get those. <laughs> but, you know, the bottom line is when you're the, when you're the lead pastor, you are the, kind of the tip of the, of the, of the spear. You, you sometimes get that. Thankfully, this church isn't that kind of church by and large. But every once in a while, I would get one. I was a senior pastor for four years, and I couldn't look past the little dot on that white piece of paper of what I didn't do and what they were upset about with all the myriad of positive response. And maybe, just maybe, when it comes to the area of judging, it's our own insecurities and defensiveness that keep us from seeing that maybe the Holy Spirit is working through somebody else's criticism of you that he wants to get at something in your life he couldn't get at any other way. Just something to think about. And so the bottom line is, folks, Satan wins when we're divided. When we start establishing these scales of self-righteous performance, because if he can get us to focus on kind of the non-essentials, then he wins instead of us. He neutralizes us. So there was, a, there was a couple of guys in the 1600s, and I think it's kind of funny. The Roman Catholics take, uh, first of all, everybody says Augustine said this, what I'm about to show you, and it wasn't Augustine. In the 1600s, uh, both a Catholic guy and a, and a reformer both said something similar to this, and so this is the popular phrase that, that I think might be worth looking at. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty but in all things, charity. That's what we want to do here. So, ultimately, in the last six verses of this section, he gives us the command of lordship in verses 7 through 12. 
And in verse 7, it says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. So ultimately, this is an issue of lordship in our lives. When we're tempted to judge somebody else, remember, we're really kind of going after God. We're kind of saying, God, you're not getting it done fast enough in this guy's life. If he, you know, if we had seen the, the sanctification process lived out, maybe, maybe this would have played out a little differently. You know, I said uh, that when I was a freshman, a uh, uh, freshman my first year of my program at Talbot, I became a little critical and judgmental. I'm studying God's word. I'm studying the Greek. I'm studying the Hebrew. And I was meeting with a, an older student who was about ready to graduate, and he was mentoring me. And I remember the first time I got into a theological debate, and it kind of angered me. And, and you're going to laugh. It was over the tribulation. <laughs> now, you go, what's the big deal with the tribulation? Well, there are three views, pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Some of you know that story, and I'm a pre-trib guy. And I said, I just can't understand how people could have like a mid-trib position or post-trib position. They're just not true to the text. He just quietly said, well, you know, there are people who take alternative views. Yeah, but they don't know God's word. I go, yeah, they really do know God's word. Yeah, but they don't study it. They've studied it as much as you've studied it. Yeah, but, you know, and I, everything, he just was quiet, et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, I was getting all worked up about this. You know, these, these are defectors from the faith. This is, this is a tantamount to, like, you know, some kind of blasphemy. Now, some of you, remember, I want to remind you, I grew up in a traditional Baptist church, premillennial, pre-trib, rapture, that's what was important. Now, I'm really glad that some of you have this really blank stare in your face, like, what in the world is he talking about? That is a good thing, let me tell you, in one level, because it's really not that big a deal. So, in fact, you know, even on our, in our church here, we have a difference of opinion on pre-trib or mid-trib. I still hold the pre-trib position. Our pastor holds to a mid-trib position. You know, someday he'll see the light, you know? <laughs> someday God will enlighten him. I'm just messing with you. And, and you know how much I love Pastor Scott. But that's the thing. We fight over stuff that really, God just shakes his head. Seriously, you guys? Really? There's more important fish to fry than that. Now, if prophecy and that particular position is your hobby horse. I am sorry that I have just now offended you, but just like send those letters to Scott and he'll, he'll correct me, all right? So ultimately, this is an issue of lordship in our lives. Secondly, Christ alone has the right to judge. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For if we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the, the bottom line there is, if in fact Christ alone is the judge, then we're, we don't have to be the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit in anybody's life. We can let the Holy Spirit work in our lives, and we, we can stop playing God because we're all going to stand before God someday. Every knee will bow. Now, if you haven't yet crossed the line of faith, just like on Easter Sunday, what better day today than to say, it's time for me to cross the line of faith and yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to do that today, Pastor Scott and I are the elders. We would love to talk to you.
But the bottom line is, we'll stand before God someday. So I want to close with this. I want to talk about three buckets. And that's the question is, what are you willing to? And the first bucket is, what are you willing to die for? Because in this discussion, really it comes down to, what is so important to you that you're going to die for that? Let me suggest to you that if you have a lot of stuff in that bucket, bucket, you don't have much time to live. I mean, tongue-in-cheek here. There, because there shouldn't be that much stuff in that bucket. Let me tell you what I would put in my bucket. And, I, and again, we could have difference of opinion what you're going to put in the die-for bucket or these next two buckets. In the die-for bucket for me, it's the gospel. It's the means of salvation. It's the idea of the deity and humanity of Christ and his resurrection. In fact, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians, what's essential? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's, that kind of sums it up. That's what's in my die-for bucket. And there's one other on a personal note. My family's in the die-for bucket. I would like to say that I would defend my kids and my wife and my grandkids if I had to with my life. What are you willing to defend? Now, I would put our, other than that core doctrine, I would put our doctrinal statement in the defend bucket. I would put the inerrancy of God's word in the defend bucket. Now, we're going to disagree about what you're going to defend, but I'm not going to die for my doctrinal statement. I'm going to die for Jesus and, and salvation stuff, but not everything our doctrinal statement is equally important. And then what are you willing to discuss? What are you willing to discuss? Those are things where there's legitimate differences with Christians and have been for decades, for millennia. End times, mode of baptism, whether communion should be taken every week or what it represents, what truly our Christian gray areas. I didn't say this last hour, but... um, I put together some questions, and if you're really, really struggling with that, what's in the discuss bucket and how you discern gray areas, that's a whole nother sermon. That's a, it's worthy of our discussion, but not for today. And so the idea here is you've got to have wisdom. Which one of those buckets are you camping on? Very few things in the die-for bucket, some things in the defend bucket, and a whole lot of stuff in the discuss bucket. I want to close with this as Chad comes up. I did some research because I was so enamored. Uh, some of you know that um, oftentimes the Protestant Reformation, we, we've got some interesting history in our background about how things came apart uh, together. But in October 1529, Jurek Zwingli, who was in Switzerland, meets Martin Luther, who's from Germany. And everybody knows about Luther and the Protestant Reformation in Germany, but we don't also know about what happened in Switzerland with Jurek Zwingli. And they come together because they're both, they're really pushing against kind of the the doctrine and practices of the Catholic Church of their day. And they came together to discuss what did they agree and did they disagree on. And there were 15 points. They they agreed on the person of Christ, the sanctification process, the authority of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, grace through faith alone and Christ alone. But on the 15th area of doctrine, they could not come to agreement. I'm just curious, students of history, do you know what they parted ways over? What doctrine? It was the issue of communion. You see, Luther could not let go of the fact of this. He said this, uh, Jesus said, this is my body, and so the bread becomes the literal body of Jesus. Zwingli says, 
Yeah, but Jesus said, I'm the vine. And he didn't literally become the vine. It was a metaphor. We don't take this literally. It's symbolic. And for millennia now, we have those who believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation or the symbolic view or the metaphorical view. And so after days, Ringley just shakes his head and says, okay, we're not, we're not going to be able to agree on this. And let's still shake the right hand of fellowship and, and we'll move forward. But Luther declines and he declares on the record historically, he says, Wingley has no place in the Christian church. I don't know about you, but there was a chord in my heart when I was reading this history this week that, that just made me sad. Two great people who, who believed passionately about Jesus and the essentials, but they couldn't agree on communion. And they part ways. So Wingley goes home devastated. And this began the first division in the Protestant Reformation. If you study your history, the Lutheran Church is born out of this division in Germany, and it spreads to the Scandinavian countries. And the, more, the Reformed Church grows in Switzerland and in England and Holland. And then the divisions continued. Two years later, Zwingli dies. And Luther writes this about Zwingli after his death. He said of him, he died in great and many sins and blasphemy. He became a heathen and he perished by the sword because he took up the sword. Luther went on to say that he would rather be torn to pieces and burned than to make common cause with Zwingli over how we view communion. Zwingli, before he died, in the last attempt to reconcile with Luther before he died, wrote this. Luther is a warrior of God who searches the scriptures with such great earnestness as no one else on earth for these hundred years has done. We should justly thank God for having raised up such an instrument for his honor, and we do it with pleasure. I got a simple question. Who would you rather be? What kind of person do you want to be? Because I can tell you, friends, it's not enough to be right. You've got to be redemptive. Now, if Luther is your hero and I have now offended you, I, I apologize. But my point is this. It's the spirit of a guy like Zwingli that I would love to see our church be like. I love the fact that we can be gracious with one another and let people grow towards Christ instead of demanding immediate perfection. Friends, God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. And it isn't enough to be right. We have to be redemptive with one another. Amen? And so... It's ironic, Scott and I were discussing this because, you know, I don't know if you realize a lot of pastors don't do what he does. They don't give up the pulpit freely. They kind of own that place and space. And so we have a great working relationship. And I was asking him his opinion about some things this week and picking his brain. He said, remember that quote that we heard at Catalyst? And we couldn't <laughs> remember who said it, but it makes sense. 
And it said this, you are more important than my viewpoint. And that's what we want to be true of, of you. You're more important than your view. We're going to love you. We're going to love us. We're going to love each other in spite of, not because of. We're going to love each other in spite of. In our imperfections, in our warts, in our lack of understanding, we're going to grow together. Amen? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you kind of a recovering judger? You find yourself looking back over your life and you tended to point the finger about what wasn't being done, what should have been done, and how others were less whatever than what you hoped they would be. And maybe sometimes you looked at them harshly and the truth be known, Paul's writing Romans 14 to us. I admit it in my own life. I've been that way in the past. Don't want to be that guy. If that's you, maybe today's the day we say, hey, I want to be redemptive in my relationships. I want love to pervade my conversation. I want grace to be extended. I don't want to deny truth. We're not talking about compromise here. We're talking about keeping the main thing the main thing. If you're in that camp that maybe today you have to admit, I got some growth in that area. Would you look up at me? I know I do. Anybody? Okay. 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 Anybody else? Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Way in the back. Okay. Hey, there's room for all of us at the foot of the cross. Lord, I thank you today that in the end, you're more important than our differences and our opinions. Help me to be redemptive in all that I do and say, help us as a church to embody grace. Help us to hold to truth. Always that tension of grace and truth, but may you make a difference in our lives. Thank you for your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't it interesting how, as I prepared and Chad prepared, that we end with that song? Because it's the Holy Spirit that changes you. Not my pushing you, not my prodding you, not our well-informed intentions. It's the Spirit of God, because it changes what we see and what we seek. Amen? You have a great week as God begins and continues to change you from the inside out. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.